Hi, I'm Mark Woods, back with another Page One podcast, and today I have Ben Kunark talking about um, his latest on our prison system, and this one is titled Work Forced, A Century Later Unpaid Prison Labor Continues to Power Florida. Um, that that headline summed it up well. I, re- <laughs> I remember once uh, somebody came to me and told me, I really like your story. You know what I liked best? That headline, and I went, thanks <laughs> right. a lot. Yeah. But that, that that did kind of sum it up well. And I was going to say, you start by telling the story of what happened in 1923, um, nearly 100 witnesses testifying before the Florida legislature about horrific conditions in the state's convict labor camps, and then tell the story of what is happening today, how some 3,500 unpaid prisoners make up Florida's shadow economy. Um, I like that historical context. I was going to maybe start by asking you which led to the story. Was it learning about 1923 Mm -hmm. and putting it in, juxtaposing it with now or vice versa? Uh, Um, Well, I guess vice versa. So really what got me looking into the the topic of prison labor was uh, the last couple of years there have been these national prison strikes, which have focused a lot on prison labor and working conditions for people who are in state prisons. So um, there was a lot of national media attention last summer to this topic, and last summer is when I started asking the department about it. And basically, uh, you know, the national media outlets were writing about prisoners in Florida working for very low wages. And I knew from covering the prison system that the vast majority of prisoners work for no wages. And I wanted to know, okay, well, we know there's 3,000 or so inmates a year who have these jobs that pay about 25 cents to 50 cents an hour. What do the rest of them do? And what I discovered was that there were these teams of people, um, you know, they make up about 3,500. It's roughly the same number. So just to start from the beginning here, everyone in prison is expected to work. If you are physically able to work, you will work, even if that's inside the prison. People who are sweeping the floors, mopping the floors, um, orderlies who have to clean up disgusting bodily fluids, um, people who work the canteens, people who work food service, but this story really focuses on the people who go outside the gate. Uh, so these are people who, unlike these paid jobs that are available for some prisoners, these are people who um, wake up early in the morning, uh, they leave uh, in a van full of other inmates, and they're working all day long for no pay, usually for the benefit of some government agency. Um, there are a handful, or, or actually about a dozen or more uh, nonprofits that use this labor as well, but the vast majority of the work is going to state departments, county departments, and municipal departments. Um, so I was curious about just initially just quantifying um, this practice, like how, how often does it happen, how many people are doing it, how much money is this stuff worth, and in kind of ascertaining the scope, I looked into some of the history and found that a lot of the same complaints that were around 100 years ago are kind of still here today. And if you look at the history of prison labor, it it comes directly from slavery. Um, When we abolished slavery, we set aside this group of people who had been convicted of a crime. And at the time, this wasn't a very large group of people, maybe 500 to 1,000 people um, back in the early uh, 20th century. 
But over time, as our prison system grew, the number of people we were subjecting to this kind of forced labor also grew. So really in the 80s and 90s is when you have the shaping of the modern-day Florida prison labor system. Hmm. Um, so that's kind of the overview. But yeah, the, the lead-in is historical because we're making the point that these same kinds of complaints are still around. Right. You, you write about how lawmakers abolished convict leasing, outlawed the strap as punishment. Right. And yet there's certain threads that remain that are very similar to what was 100 years ago. Yeah, so as far as convict leasing, so this was a practice of, of actually um, renting out actual human beings. So right in the days following slavery, we were, we were giving human beings that had been convicted of crimes to private companies and those companies were paying us, um, you know, a sum every year for using these bodies. And they were then responsible for uh, clothing and housing these people. And there's a great book written about convict leasing. And, and as you were talking about the headline, kind of summing things up, the title of this book is, If One Dies, Get Another. Hmm. And that was kind of wow. the attitude around convict leasing was, you know, the, because these were such um, commoditized practices, they were viewed as property. Um, and so this led to horrific conditions, and then eventually um, a white kid from North Dakota died down here uh, mm. in, in a convict leasing camp. And North Dakota legislators demanded uh, an inquiry, mm. and the Florida legislature abided. And what happened was this kind of mass uh, time of reflection when we were looking at the convict le leasing system here under national pressure, national headlines, and the lawmakers here eventually you know, we had already begun to move away from convict leasing at the state level, but they abolished it at the county level, too, because counties were still doing it. So the point there is really that, you know, we, we determined that this horrible practice was inhumane and that we couldn't stomach it anymore. Um, but at the same time, as we were replacing these kind of whippings and torture with solitary confinement, um, you know, the, the overall picture didn't really change. You still had people who were being forced to work. You still had people living in unsanitary conditions, people who weren't getting enough food, um, people were working in unsafe conditions. So um, that is kind of the, the history that, that still echoes today. And, and maybe the most interesting aspect of all of that is that the, um, the real vehicle for this uh, move away from convict leasing into state prison labor was the state road department at the time, mm -hmm. which is now known as the Florida Department of Transportation. Mm -hmm. And we that's where chain gangs came from. We were using prisoners to build all these roads because so many tourists wanted to come down to Florida. Mm. Um, and now today, the state DOT is one of the biggest consumers of prison labor. I mean, we still, to this day, we subsidize our state roads using uh, state prisoners. In mm. One thing I found interesting, you wrote about most states don't do what we do anymore. How, how would other states be different from what we do? Sure. So the vast majority of states, so it's only about five, maybe six states that have unpaid prison labor at all. The vast majority of states will pay prisoners something. And you're talking about, in just about every instance, you're talking about less than a dollar an hour. But even at that very meager rate and i'm not saying that you know maybe prisoners don't deserve to be compensated a little more but when you're not paying for your rent or any bills or anything even five dollars a day um can mean a lot to someone who's in prison they have no other way of getting any income at all and uh, as i kind of touch on in the piece um so much of life in prison is is uh, the quality of life you're going to have is going to be directly related to how much money is on your bank account hmm. you get 
the bare essentials from the Florida Department of Corrections, and they would argue that they give you everything you need. Um, but you get a tiny little bar of soap every week. So if you're out there, uh, imagine like a holiday in size bar of soap. Mm-hmm. And if you're out there every day from five in the morning to three in the afternoon, just getting completely disgustingly sweaty and gross and dirty, um, you're not going to be able to keep yourself clean with one little holiday in bar of soap a week. Yeah. So the ability to buy stuff from the canteen is huge. And that also goes to food, um, not getting enough food. You can supplement that with you know, sandwiches and stuff from the canteen. Hmm. So if we were to pay these prisoners some amount of money, uh, I think they would appreciate anything they could get. Mm-hmm. Um, a big piece of the story is what happened in Alachua County. Or yeah. it, it's very interesting. So maybe explain um, a little bit of that. Yeah. So Alachua, so it was interesting because Alachua started looking at this issue actually after I had already been reporting on it for several months. So as this was happening, I kind of got nervous because I wanted to do this big uh, look, comprehensive look at prison labor. And I was like, oh man, now everyone's going to be um, you know, focus on prison labor because this novel thing is happening in Alachua County. They're, they're looking at terminating their state prison contract. Turned out, not that many people paid attention to it. Um, the Gainesville paper, uh, the Gainesville Sun did a great job mm-hmm. covering this and they editorialized about it um, and came out in favor of ending these prison contracts, actually, the editorial board down there. Um, and, you know, basically what happened was it came from these grassroots activists, these prisoner rights activists. And they were camping out in front of the work camp, and they were drawing attention to it, and they were meeting with um, commissioners in Alachua County. And the argument they were making is that these conditions were inhumane and also that, um, you know, it was wrong to compete with local people who wanted jobs working for the county doing some Mm. of this work. Mm. It was wrong to take people who were incarcerated, who don't get paid, um, this kind of classic uh, labor union point of view. Mm-hmm. which was, has been around since the days of convict leasing. Labor unions have long opposed prison labor because they felt like it was not only degrading and, and inhumane, but also that it was unfairly competing with free laborers. Yeah, I found that interesting. You so, had the yeah. AFL-CIO. Right. And, and and you're right, it makes sense, but I wouldn't have thought about that. So historically that's been true also? Yeah, yeah. so that was one of the groups that opposed huh. convict leasing in the earlier part of the 20th century. So anyway, this this debate took shape in Alachua, and it actually was surprisingly, even though they were adding almost $2 million uh, annually to the cost of running the government by not using prison labor anymore, there was very little political opposition to it. Um, There was a lot of people showing up at these hearings, and the county commission, I think it ended up being a unanimous vote. I'd have to go back and look. But um, the the county commission just went ahead and and ended their contract, and as far as I can tell, it's the first time that's ever happened in the state of Florida. Yeah, I did find that interesting. I even wrote down that quote, that, you know, little political opposition. You had a quote from the Gainesville City Commissioner, Gail Johnson. I really do believe when we look back at this time period, 200 years from now, this will be the issue that people will look back and say, how did we participate in that and why? Yeah, I really related to that quote as a reporter who covers prisons because I talk to people who've served time, uh, very often, I talk to people who work in the prisons very often, and so much of this system functions the way it does because no one knows what's happening. Hmm. Um, you know, we we put these prisons in in rural areas. Um, you know, the people working them are all from that small town, um, and it's very much kept behind 
the gates as far as what happens. And it's very much a black box as far as trying to find out the truth about mm-hmm. what's happening in, in certain prisons. So this idea that you know when when we eventually, as a society, realize what what's going on in these prisons, um, we're going to look back and wonder how how we were capable of letting this happen. Hmm. I relate to that in the sense that I feel like, and I've said this before publicly. I feel like the attitude lawmakers take towards prisons, and this isn't just inmates, but also corrections officers who work in the prisons who have a bevy of complaints about their mm. pay, about the working conditions, about the environmental conditions in these prisons, about the mold and the unsanitary nature of them. Um, they're in the same boat together, inmates and corrections officers, because no, mm. one, no one really seems to care about their quality of life. So I've always said that if lawmakers were forced to interview one person leaving prison and maybe one person working in a prison every week hmm. that we might see a very different treatment of these systems. Um, but as it is now, we kind of just let it stay as a complete mess because it's a mess that very few of us have to deal with on a daily basis. Right. Um, also, in Ga- so, you know, you're describing Latchio County, but it was interesting. Also in Gainesville, University of Florida uses more prison labor than any other college in the state more than 150,000 hours since just 2015. Um, and then I think I saw you tweeted recently there were protests there about this at commencement or something recently. So, yeah, ex- tell me about what's happening in Gainesville. Yes. I mean, at University of Florida. So, as far as the University of Florida goes, um, you know, it's one of the oldest institutions in the state, and I believe there's some research being done right now about the university's historical ties to slavery as well. Um, and I don't know exactly when the university started using prison labor, but I plan to, to follow up on that and, and ask more questions about that. Um, I was pretty surprised by the university's response to my findings. Um, I expected something a little bit more reflective than what they gave me. When, and what they gave me was basically like, um, you know, to every finding, their response was like, look, this is the DOC's issue. Mm-hmm. We don't know what happens in prisons after they leave. We don't know what happens in the prisons before they get there. We have no knowledge of they're being forced to work. We have no knowledge of these conditions you're talking about. And in my head, I'm just going, well, okay, um, but you're still using this program. You're still participating and enabling this program to to exist. Using it a lot. Yes. I mean, those, the, the, the yeah. number of hours is pretty remarkable. Yeah, yeah I mean, the, the number of hours is staggering. And so as far as the, the student resistance, you know, this – these students are so tapped in Um, and I say this about journalism uh, concerning criminal justice going forward I have a a lot of optimism for the future of criminal justice journalism because every time I go to a J school and talk to students they are so much more aware of the nuances of the criminal justice system than a lot of the editors I've had discussions Mm. with not my editor who's Mm. fantastic Mary (laughs) Kelly Um, but several editors don't quite uh, have a very nuanced view. It's it's always just like, well, you know, if they're behind bars, why should we care? Um, and so these students are very aware of the optics, of the history, of the problems involved with prison labor, and they've been protest, protesting it and demanding that UF divest from their contracts. And mm-hmm. so I plan to sit down with some of those students um, in the next couple of weeks and, and talk to them a little bit more because I'm, I'm thinking about doing a follow-up story on that. Yeah, I found that little section of it very interesting. Um, uh, I wanted to backtrack and you know get the Department of Corrections response. They so Mark Inch said it's an integral part of inmates' rehabilitation and restitution. Um, inmates who are assigned to work squads provide a valuable service to Florida communities, reduce expenditures to pa- taxpayers, 
and receive job skills and experience that will benefit their lives once they're released. Yeah. And uh, you said not everyone would ag- agree with that assessment. Yeah, I mean, no one that I talked to would agree with that assessment. Um, so the the job skills he's talking about there, uh, my understanding from talking to prisoners and even you know talking on background with some prison officials is that you're not being taught new trade skills as a result of these work squad programs. There are programs that do that um, in the prison system, but those would replace, they would be in lieu of a work squad program, these vocational programs. Hmm. Uh, what the work squad programs do do is that they take advantage of the skills you already have. So if you knew how to weld, like Chad Brown, or if you were a woodworker or a bricklayer, they would find that out in classification and they would ask you about that and then they would take you and, and put you to work doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know what job skills are, are really being taught. Right, and yeah, the, <coughs> the people you talked to said it didn't, yeah, it didn't help them one bit. Yeah, I mean, the, the quote that stuck with me, I actually didn't end up making this story, but someone who I was talking to about this subject said, the only thing I learned how to do in prison was do tattoos. And I think a lot of people would, would probably have a similar experience. Wow. Um, you touched on this a little bit, the, the rural aspect, which I hadn't thought about, which makes sense. You picture where our prisons are, and they are. Yeah. Um, and it's one of the things, you had three of the top five for use enforced prison labor un- counties, Union, Gadsden, Gulf, have less than 1% of the state population. Um, and then you talked about how in the Great Recession, they said, if you allow us to build a, commu- a prison in your community, we'll make sure you get inmate work crews you need. Um, I found that dynamic very interesting. Yeah, I mean, it seems an awful lot like slavery to me. Uh, you have like urban, a lot of urban people um, from urban communities. A lot of them are African-American. And the way our Florida prison system works is you're being shipped off into rural counties. Um, and if you're one of these kind of lower custody people who, who you're nearing the end of your sentence, you have a pretty high likelihood of ending up at one of these rural work camps. And then suddenly, you know, you might come from Tampa and now you're up in the panhandle doing work for the county road department. Mm-hmm. Um, and the counties wouldn't have uh, proper roads, right, without you. Mm-hmm. And these counties are inherently reliant on as prison labor now. Um, they're, they're just incorporated into their budgets. So <clears throat> that dynamic, um, other than a historical relation to slavery, <clears throat> to me that dynamic really, it, it brought to mind this, uh, this kind of system of taking people and displacing them and using them to prop up these rural uh, economies in the state, um, which I think dates back, you know, 100 years or more. So it is, it is a disturbing kind of um, you know, thing, and I think a few people have reacted online with that, saying, um, you know, isn't that exactly what, because uh, there's one guy quoted in the article saying, we couldn't, we couldn't take care of our roads, our facilities, without inmate labor, and people pointed to that and said, isn't that what people said about slavery and picking cotton? And that is what they said. Um, so it, it should give us pause when we have economies that are built on people being forced to work. Now, the flip side to that is people are always going to say, um, you know, you shouldn't have committed a crime if you didn't want to end up in prison being forced to work. Well, the reality is that we, we know or I know from covering policing and covering the criminal justice system is that a lot of people commit crimes. And I would venture that just about everyone uh, listening to this podcast commits crimes at some point, whether it's speeding or 
um, you know, little infractions. And what happens is when you live in certain communities that are over-policed and, and more heavily subjected to the criminal justice system, you get less chances um, and you get less passes and, and you, you're less likely to get overlooked. So I'm not taking the onus off of people who end up in prison completely. Um, there are some people who clearly pose public safety threats um, to society, uh, but those people don't end up on work squads. Hmm. When you're talking about work squads, you're talking about people that you trust. The Department of Corrections has decided we trust this person enough to send them outside the gate. Um, and to, you know, I saw videos of, of people on work squads holding a shovel in the middle of the University of Florida campus while students were walking by them. And in my head, I'm thinking, well, if you trust the person enough to be uh, supervised by a DOT employee to hold a shovel in the middle of a college campus surrounded by students, why exactly are we paying to incarcerate this person? Um, what public safety threat does this person pose? And if they're in there for a drug offense, um, I don't know. I mean, look at the prison system. It's $2.4 billion a year. It's, it's literally uh, bursting at the seams right now as far as, you know, we don't have the staffing. Uh, we're asking our CEOs to work 14, 16-hour shifts. Hmm. Um, we're, you know, we're in a crisis. And so we need to have a, a kind of a, a very critical view of what our prison system is doing. And if it's keeping people who are caught with like a dime bag of crack cocaine uh, incarcerated so that we can have them work for Union County, I, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Right. Wanted to bring it back to Jacksonville. You mentioned that we we don't have this in place in Jacksonville, but yeah. there is a an effect in Jacksonville because... Sure, yeah. Well, so in Jacksonville, we send, at least as the most recent data from DOC on admissions, we send more people to prison than any other county in the state. Um, but, you know, the it is kind of ironic to me that, you know, we're the, we are the Jacksonville paper and we're covering a statewide issue that um, not only does it not really happen here because there are no prisons in, in Duval and there are no state facilities very close by to Jacksonville, which I think is a big factor in why it doesn't happen here. Um, but it's also, there's a history here. If you look back a hundred years where Jacksonville was kind of the cultural center to this more civilized kind of the people who recoiled at convict leasing, a lot of them were based in Jacksonville. Hmm. And the Florida Times Union um, was one of the newspapers 100 years ago that was churning out headlines on this stuff and bringing hmm. attention to it. So in a way, you know, we have some historical stuff here around our new office. Um, in a way, I feel like this is coming full circle, that we are the newspaper that's taking a critical look at, at prison labor because we are the oldest uh, newspaper in the state that's still running, and we have like a very established legacy. Hmm. of covering this issue. Hmm. I, I kind of wish there was a way to bring that up in, in the article, but you know, there's just so much material that we never got to it. But I, I personally think it's kind of cool um, that the newspaper continues to, to shine a light on these issues. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, yeah, it was interesting also, I was, you, how the contrast in wording, uh, uh, the mayor of a panhandle town <laughs> said, we, we need bodies. And that Gainesville city commissioner said, we're still buying bodies and we're trading labor, which kind of um, gets back to something that you started with, you know, slavery. In the second paragraph, you talk about after opening with the 1923 testimonies, you say that some 57 years after slavery had been abolished, a loophole in the 13th Amendment allowed the state to profit off forcing prisoners, most of them black, to work. And I was going to ask you, you know, you clearly deliberately used the word slavery, and I was going to You've already brought that up. You feel this is a modern-day version of it. 
Yeah, so I was careful because there's been some, even in the debate in Alachua, there were the activists calling it slavery, prison slavery, and at least one commissioner kind of, you know, bucked at that. It was a a white man, though. Mm -hmm. And he was saying, well, you know, slavery was so bad, and isn't it kind of trivializing slavery to call this slavery? But if you talk to people of color, um, they see this as resembling slavery. Hmm. And I think maybe their opinion might hold a little more weight in this in this circumstance. Hmm. Um, but I, I mean, I think, it, is, it, is it worth getting into a debate about whether it's technically slavery or just something that looks a whole lot like slavery? Uh, in my mind, slavery is being forced to work without a choice and not getting any pay or other benefit from it. Um, so it would definitely fall under that definition. But I also think getting caught up in that word, um, you, you end up losing the perspective of, well, let's just talk about what, what conditions these people live under. And I can relay some of that, which is, you know, we, we talked to prisoners who talked about um, scabies running rampant through the dorms, f- forcing closures of the dorms. We talked to tons of people who mentioned that they weren't allowed to shower right when they got back. So we were talking about the dirt and grime for their uniform. And if they get back around 3.30 or 4 in the afternoon, which is right around inmate count, for inmate count, they're required to sit on their beds. So they don't get the option to go in the shower. So they're they're coming back covered in filth. They're, they're getting the filth all over their beds. Um, and then the food, there's tons of complaints about the food. And then probably the overarching thing over all this, and this is what covering the prison system is all about is the complaints about the officers. Now I talk to a lot of officers and I know from talking to them that this kind of abuse that the inmates are complaining about does go on. There are good officers and there are bad officers and, and that might be oversimplifying it a little bit, but the COs will tell you that too, that there are guys that abuse their power in there. And when that does happen, and I'm not saying how often it happens or that it happens all the time, but when it does happen, um, you know, the way the prison system is set up, and uh, there's really very little a, an inmate can do if he is being targeted by a CO. Um, he can complain and file grievances, but that is likely just going to lead to more retaliation from the CO. At the end of the day, he's in a cage, and he doesn't get to go to anyone for help. So this kind of coercion and extortion that we heard about from inmates, um, you know, about planting contraband on people who won't pay up and this kind of corruption among COs. I mean, it happens all the time in the prison system. A lot of people are arrested for it. The Office of Inspector General at the Florida Department of Corrections does do um, some investigations and make some arrests on this stuff. Um, but I know from covering the prison system that it happens uh, you know, more often than we might think. So these kind of conditions that people are living under, um, you know, I think when you, when you focus on that, uh, the idea of like is this slavery or is this something else? Um, now I think I think you could make the argument that even if it's technically not slavery in, in the in the traditional sense, it looks all, way too close to it for it to be socially acceptable. And you touch a little bit on this, but what what would you say changes could and should be made? going into the future yeah so i've had these discussions um quite a bit and i think you know samson yangway the uh researcher who i quote in in uh the story did a really good job of summing up some things that could be made to um improve this so the the one piece we haven't really touched on here is recidivism and so that is kind of the big uh structural flaw in florida and pretty much everywhere 
um, is that what happens with the prison system is that you go in there, you get poor, um, you you all all you are is surrounded by more people who are doing bad things, and you get out and you're expected with all these debts and and having no income for many years, you're expected to just stay out of prison. Um, and there's very little resources that are focused on making sure that that people have what they need to avoid going back to prison. I'm talking to someone who is quoted in the article right now who got a job and then just lost his job because he had to go to court. Hmm. And when he had to go to court, the, the job he was working for just like, okay, well, if you can't make it here every day, like we don't need you. Um, so these kind of issues about, you know, so the rate in Florida after three years is like you have a 33% chance after three that number goes up to 65 after five. Um, so you're talking about a, a very expensive, wasteful system where the ostensibly the purpose of prisons is to correct people um, and make them better. But no one's getting better from their time in Florida prisons. I mean, there might be some exceptions to that rule, but the vast majority of people are not. Hmm. So uh, that going back to how you can make the work squad program better. Well, let's acknowledge something that every prisoner I talk to would prefer to be working as opposed to just sitting around in a dormitory all day. But those same people also want something for it. And I don't think that's wrong. Even though they've committed a crime and they're serving their time, I don't think it's wrong to expect some kind of help. And it's not necessarily payment, um, although I think most people would agree that they, they should be compensated in some way, even if it's not a minimum wage compensation. But it's also, um, help me get a job when I get out. Um, help me make sure I have a place to live. Uh, help me be able to pay all these restitution debts that I owe on my criminal case. Um, if we think about it from a financial perspective, and this is where a lot of the right-wing kind of financial conservatives get very invested in criminal justice reform, just from an economic standpoint, it makes very little sense to spend all this money on cycling people in and out of the system. Right. We can try and try to, to, to recoup our costs, but we're just we're just throwing money away. Um, so if we were to take some of the money um, and reinvest it on making sure that people aren't coming back to prison after they get out, uh, we might dramatically reduce the size of our prison population. And if we do that, you know, we we don't have to have eighty six prisons um, in the state of Florida. It doesn't. You know, this this modern prison system that we have. Um, is a direct result of a lot of sentencing policies and a lot of tough-on-crime policies that we now know don't work, and we know they don't reduce crime. So we have a lot of uh, questions to answer as a, as a state as to what do we want going forward, um, because I think most people would agree that what we currently have isn't working. Hmm. Well, great. Anything I haven't asked you about? No, I think everyone's tired of me by now. <laughs> no, no. Really good stuff. And... Um, yeah, I guess I should have said at the beginning, It's uh, in, is it in Sunday's paper? I believe so, yeah. Sunday's paper, and of course, on Jacksonville.com, uh, the headline, Work Forced. Um, <laughs> nice presentation. I got a, a glimpse of it. It looks like Gary Mills had a yeah, nice... Shout uh, out to Gary yeah. Mills. Shout out to uh, Jeff Davis and Andrew for helping with the graphs, and, and the um, always uh, lovely Mary Kelly Palka <laughs> for her unwavering support of yes. local journalism. Yeah, no, it looks like it. Um, yeah, so definitely check it out and um, make sure to follow whatever Ben comes up with next. And shout out to Mark Woods for being our <laughs> intrepid podcast. Yeah, that's right. All right. Thanks a lot, Ben. All right. Thanks, Mark.